Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Groh, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. September 12. On this date in history, in the year 1993, the new floating bridge opens in Seattle. The I-90 stretches from coast to coast. The rebuilt Lacey v. Murrow Bridge over Lake Washington opens in Seattle. The new bridge, which was actually the eastbound lanes of Interstate 90, the westbound lanes cross the lake on a separate bridge, connects the city and its eastern suburbs. It replaced the original Murrow Bridge, the first floating concrete bridge in the world, which was destroyed by a flood in November 1990. In December 1938, Washington Governor Clarence Martin and Lacey V. Morrow, the director of the Washington Toll Bridge Authority, broke ground on what would be the largest floating structure in the world, the Lake Washington Floating Bridge, also known as the Mercer Island Bridge, between Seattle to the west and Bellevue, Washington to the east. It was renamed for Morrow in 1967. At the time the bridge was built, it carried U.S. Route 10 across the lake. A few decades later, that highway became Interstate 90. The bridge was a Public Works Administration-financed project designed to give work to unemployed Washingtonians and to make the towns across the lake from Seattle more accessible to suburban development. When the bridge opened in 1940, the Seattle Times called it the biggest thing afloat. It was almost two miles long, contained 100,000 tons of steel, floated on more than 20 hollow concrete pontoons, and carried 5,000 cars each day. By 1989, its daily load was closer to 100,000 cars. In 1990, while the bridge was closed for repairs, construction workers punched giant holes in the pontoons that kept it afloat and went home for the weekend. A few days of rain and high winds filled the pontoons with water and the bridge broke apart and sank. Repairing it was no easy task. The sinking pontoons had pulled more than a half mile of highway into the lake with them, and the structure needed to be rebuilt from scratch. This project took three years and cost $93 million. When the bridge finally reopened, it closed one of the last remaining gaps in the interstate highway system. A person could drive from Boston to Seattle without ever leaving the I-90. September 13. On this date in history, in the year 1963, Mary Kay launches her namesake company. Texas-born entrepreneur Mary Kay Ash launches a cosmetic company in Dallas, with her $5,000 life savings and the help of her 20-year-old son, Richard Rogers. Mary Kay Inc. would become a cosmetic empire with revenue of more than $3.5 billion and salespeople in dozens of countries. Ash, a fierce advocate for women, quit a sales job in the early 1960s after a man had been promoted to a position above her 
at double her salary. Those men didn't believe a woman had brain matter at all. I learned back then that as long as men didn't believe women could do anything, women were never going to have a chance, she told Texas Monthly Magazine in 1995. Mary Kay, one of the world's largest direct-selling companies, became renowned for an award system designed for women, including mink coats, diamond rings, and pink Cadillacs. Ash once owned a 19,000-square-foot mansion with a gigantic pink marble bathtub. On the popular CBS show 60 Minutes, Morley Safer called her a pink panther whose instinct for doing business and making money is as finely tuned as a jungle cat going for the kill. Ash relished mentoring her saleswomen and referring to them as her daughters. I want you to become the highest paid women in America, she told them in company motivational speeches. Ash, who became one of the most recognizable businesswomen in America, died in 2001. She was 83. September 14. On this date in history, in the year 1964, John Steinbeck is awarded the Medal of Freedom. Writer John Steinbeck was presented the U.S. Medal of Freedom on September 14, 1964. Steinbeck had already received numerous other honors and awards for his writing, including the 1962 Nobel Prize and a 1939 Pulitzer Prize for Grapes of Wrath. Steinbeck, a native Californian, studied writing intermittently at Stanford between 1920 and 1925, but never graduated. He moved to New York and worked as a manual laborer and journalist while writing his first two novels, which were not successful. He married in 1930 and moved back to California with his wife. His father, a government official in Salinas County, gave the couple a house to live in while Steinbeck continued writing. His first novel, Tortilla Flat, about the comic antics of several rootless drifters who share a house in California, was published in 1935. The novel became a financial success. Steinbeck's next works, In Dubious Battle and Of Mice and Men, were both successful, and in 1938, his masterpiece, The Grapes of Wrath, was published. The novel, about the struggles of an Oklahoma family, who lose their farm and become fruit pickers in California, won a Pulitzer Prize in 1939. After World War II, Steinbeck's work became more sentimental in such novels as Cannery Row and The Pearl. He also wrote several successful films, including Forgotten Village in 1941 and Viva Zapata in 1952. He became interested in marine biology and published a non-fiction book, the Sea of Cortez in 1941. His travel memoir, Travels with Charlie, describes his trek across the United States in a camper. Steinbeck won the Nobel Prize in 1962 and died in New York in 1968. September 15. On this date in history, in the year 1858, the first transcontinental mail service to San Francisco begins. The new Overland Mail Company sends out first two stages, inaugurating government mail service between the eastern and western regions of the nation, with California booming thanks to the 1849 gold rush. Americans east and west had been clamoring for faster and surer transcontinental mail service for years. 
Finally, in March 1857, the U.S. Congress passed an act authorizing an overland mail delivery service and a $600,000 yearly subsidy for whatever company could succeed in reliably transporting the mail twice a week from St. Louis to San Francisco in less than 25 days. The Postmaster General awarded the first government contract and subsidy to the Overland Mail Company. Under the guidance of a board of directors that included John Butterfield and William Fargo, the Overland Mail Company spent $1 million improving its winding 2,800-mile route and building way stations at 10 to 15-mile intervals. Teams of thundering horses soon raced across the wide-open spaces of the West, pulling custom-built Concord coaches with seats for nine passengers and a rear boot for the mail. For passengers, the Overland route was anything but a pleasure trip. Packed into the narrow confines of the coaches, they alternately baked or froze as they bumped across the countryside and dust was an inescapable companion. Since the coaches traveled night and day, travelers were reluctant to stop and sleep at one of the home stations along the route because they risked being stranded if later stages were full. Many opted to try and make it through the three-week trip by sleeping on the stage, but the constant bumping and noise made real sleep almost impossible. Travelers also found that toilets and baths were few and far between. The food was poor and pricey, and the stage drivers were often drunk, rude, profane, or all three. Robberies and Indian attacks were a genuine threat, though they occurred far less commonly than popularly believed. The company posted guards at stations in dangerous areas, and armed men occasionally rode with the coach driver to protect passengers. Though other faster mail delivery services soon came to compete with the Overland Mail Company, most famously the Pony Express, the nation's first regular trans-Western mail service continued to operate as part of the larger Wells Fargo and Company operation until May 10, 1869, the day the first transcontinental railroad was completed. On that day, the U.S. government canceled its last overland mail contract. September 16. On this date in history, in the year 1940, the United States imposes the draft. The Burke-Wadsworth Act is passed by Congress on September 16, 1940, by wide margins in both houses, and the first peace-time draft in the history of the United States is imposed. Selective service was born. The registration of men between the ages of 21 and 36 began exactly one month later, as Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson who had been a key player in moving the Roosevelt administration away from a foreign policy of strict neutrality, began drawing draft numbers out of a glass bowl. The numbers were handed to the president, who read them aloud for public announcement. There were some 20 million eligible young men. 50% were rejected the very first year, either for health reasons or illiteracy. 20% of those who registered were illiterate. In November 1942, with the United States now a participant in the war and not merely a neutral bystander, the draft ages expanded. Men 18 to 37 were now eligible. Blacks were passed over for the draft because of racist assumptions about their abilities and the viability of a mixed-race military. But this changed in 1943 when a quota was imposed, meant to limit the number of blacks drafted to reflect their numbers in the overall population, roughly 10.6% of the whole. 
Initially, blacks were restricted to labor units, but this too ended as the war progressed when they were finally used in combat. Conscientious objector status was granted to those who could demonstrate sincerity of belief in religious teachings combined with a profound moral aversion to war. Quakers made up most of the COs, but 75% of those Quakers who were drafted fought. COs had to perform alternate service in civilian public service camps, which entailed long hours of hazardous work for no compensation. About 5,000 to 6,000 men were imprisoned for failing to register or serve the nation in any form. These numbers were comprised mostly of Jehovah's Witnesses. By war's end, approximately 34 million men had registered, and 10 million served with the military. September 17. On this date in history, in the year 1976, NASA unveils its first space shuttle, the Enterprise. NASA publicly unveils its first space shuttle, the Enterprise, during a ceremony in Palmdale, California. Development of the aircraft-like spacecraft cost about $10 billion and took nearly a decade. In 1977, the Enterprise became the first space shuttle to fly freely when it was lifted to a height of 25,000 feet by a Boeing 747 airplane and then released, gliding back to Edwards Air Force Base on its own accord. Regular flights of the space shuttle began on April 12, 1981, with the launching of Columbia from Cape Canaveral, Florida. Launched by two solid rocket boosters and an external tank, only the aircraft-like shuttle entered into orbit around the Earth. When the two-day mission was completed, the shuttle fired engines to reduce speed and, after descending through the atmosphere, landed like a glider at California's Edwards Air Force Base. Early shuttles took satellite equipment into space and carried out various scientific experiments. On January 28, 1986, NASA and the space shuttle program suffered a major setback when the Challenger exploded 74 seconds after takeoff, and all seven people aboard were killed. In September 1988, space shuttle flights resumed with the successful launching of the Discovery. Since then, the space shuttle has carried out numerous important missions, such as the repair and maintenance of the Hubble Space Telescope and the construction and manning of the International Space Station. A tragedy in space again rocked the nation on February 1, 2003, when Columbia, on its 28th mission, disintegrated during re-entry of the Earth's atmosphere. All seven astronauts aboard were killed. In the aftermath, the space shuttle program was grounded until Discovery returned to space in July 2005. Amid concerns that the problems that had downed Columbia had not yet been fully solved, NASA's final space shuttle mission came to an end in July 2011. September 18. On this date in history, in the year 1846, the struggling Donner Party sends ahead to California for food. Weeks behind schedule and the massive Sierra Nevada mountains still to be crossed on September 18, 1846, the members of the ill-fated Donner Party realize they are running short of supplies and send two men ahead to California to bring back food. The group of 89 emigrants had begun their western trek earlier that summer in Springfield, Illinois, under the leadership of the brothers Jacob and George Donner. Unfortunately, the Donner brothers had recently read The Immigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, 
the imaginative creation of an irresponsible author-adventurer named Lansford Hastings, who wanted to encourage more overland immigrants to travel to the Sacramento Valley of California. The Donners innocently accepted Hastings's claim that a shorter route he had blazed to California would cut weeks off the usual trip and agreed to place the fate of the wagon train in his hands once they reached Fort Bridger, Wyoming. From that point forward, the men, women, and children of the Donner Party were in trouble. Though the so-called Hastings cutoff was indeed shorter than the usual route, Hastings's glowing descriptions of his trail irresponsibly downplayed its many difficulties, as the Donner Party soon discovered. After following a boulder-strewn and nearly impassable route over the Wasatch Ridge in Utah, the party embarked on an arduous six-day trek across the desert, a journey that Hastings had promised would take only two days. Lightening their loads by abandoning chairs, family heirlooms, wagons, and livestock to be swallowed up by the blazing sands, the emigrants struggled onward towards the Sierra Nevada. A month after the two men had left for California, one returned with the desperately needed provisions as well as two Indian guides to help lead the party on the final stage of the trip through the Sierras. But by then, it was already late October. Hastings's shortcut had cost the Donner Group so much time that they now risked being trapped in the high mountains if an early snowstorm chanced to fall. Unfortunately for the luckless emigrants, just such a snowstorm arrived on the night of October 28. The next day, the Donner Party was snowbound in the Sierras. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for September 12 through September 18. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to visit us on social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.